uh, Psalm 82, we're still in the third book of the Psalter, uh, the third book where most of the chapters we've been reading have been songs of lament, and this is yet another psalm from our brother Asaph. Uh, this is going to be one of the shorter psalms that we've tackled this year. Gordon said, thank goodness, eight verses, Barton, you're a little long-winded, but have no fear, friends, this is chalk-filled with theology. I'll try to get you uh, out in time, no promises, though. Uh, wonderful theology of who God is, what He cares about, what He wants us to care about, particularly regarding this theme of justice. Uh, Psalm 82, and justice, as it turns out, was very important for Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, the priests would give the people of Israel a psalm for each day of the week. And for the third day of the week, which would have been Tuesday, they were to sing Psalm 82. Every Tuesday, they would sing Psalm 82 over and over and over again. Now, we might ask, that seems a little redundant, quite boring. There's 150 chapters. Why not have a little bit of variety, right? My son is of the age right now where he listens to the same songs over. If I have one more hearing of wheels on the bus, I'm going to go insane, okay? Um, But why would they sing this song every single Tuesday? Well, the, the reason is simple. Israel was a minority nation, and they were regularly abused and oppressed by stronger and more powerful foreign nations and also corrupt leaders within Israel. And so they sang this every Tuesday over and over again, one, to give them wisdom of how to live justly in an unjust society, but also for their encouragement in what Psalm 82 teaches. Among other things, it teaches that God is on the throne at all times. Even those moments in life where it seems like He isn't, we are reminded that God is always on His throne. Uh, Secondly, we are reminded that God sees absolutely everything. There's not one thing that escapes God's gaze. And thirdly, we are too reminded that one day, in His own time, God will return and make that as all unjust, just. Psalm 82 is a corporate uh, psalm of lament where they would take their laments to God, their complaints to God. They're not complaining about God. They're taking their complaint to God, saying, God, this world is not how it's supposed to be. So they take their complaint to God, all the while resting and receiving comfort in the fact that not only does God hear their cry and see their situation, He is the God that one day in due time will come back and make all things right. Psalm 82, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of God. God has taken his place in the divine council. This is Asaph speaking in verse 1. Then in verse 2, God speaks. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God speaks. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Then again, we hear from Asaph in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you, in- for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've given us this morning where we can come together as brothers and feast upon your word. Lord, as we sang in amazing grace, you have opened our eyes to the glory of Christ, to the gospel, and to the way the world ought to work. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be humbled by the gospel we have received in Jesus, that we would be empowered to be your gospel people in a world that desperately needs gospel people. We pray these things in the name of the blessed King Jesus. Amen. In the late 19th century, a German Baptist pastor, I'm going to mispronounce his name, named Walter Rauschenbusch, whose first pastorate was in Hell's Kitchen, New York, was the first to term the phrase the social gospel. Living in Hell's Kitchen, he was up close and personal with the horrors and the tragedy of poverty and injustice. And because of that, because he saw these people face-to-face, he began to question the traditional practices of evangelism, traditionally focusing primarily on people's spiritual condition, 
not spending too much time on their tangible physical condition. Eventually, this led him to abandon the faith altogether. He abandoned traditional evangelical theology, uh, forsook the need of a person having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and focused solely on people's tangible needs to alleviate their suffering. He had followers. In response to that, there was a group of Orthodox Christians, let's call them uh, fundamentalists, who won the opposite end of the direction. Um, they forsook the social gospel and any wordage of the like in order to uh, secure and maintain true theology. Uh, they were afraid that the church would be ensnared in his type of liberalism, theological liberalism, and even legalism. And in order to avoid that altogether, they focused simply on the spiritual condition of man, avoiding topics about physical condition all whatsoever. Um, they thought to themselves and taught that the gospel, it's a, it's a personal thing. It's about a personal salvation. There's no social aspect to the gospel. Essentially, they taught baptisms of Christ and the great, com uh, great commandment of Matthew 28, um, but they didn't do the latter of what Jesus commands, teach them all that I've commanded you, namely loving your neighbor. So you have this dichotomy, these two camps. We are reminded by Jonathan Edwards uh, remember, by the way, no one's ever accused Jonathan Edwards of being a liberal theologian. Um, but we're reminded by Jonathan Edwards that's a false dichotomy. One that results in two ridiculous positions of faith. Uh, Jonathan Edwards it was a stalwart of evangelical theology and evangelism. But he also said this in The Duty of Charity. He said, where, we have, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more urgent manner than the command to give to and love the poor, our neighbors? Edwards thought to himself that these two camps, they resulted in having a God that was way too small, both of them. He said the God of the Bible is a God that loves us so much and redeems us so powerfully, he puts us back together again bit by bit, both spiritually and physically. He had a theology that was formed by the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount that tells us that Jesus, he saves us in spite of ourselves, undeservingly, then shows us a new way of living. He was informed by the Apostle James, who tells us that the gospel must be preached by both word and deed, that true religion is God redeeming us, putting us back together again, bit by bit, spiritually and physically, thus so are his people, to minister both in word and in deed. And he was informed by Psalm 82 that tells us the God of love, the God that saves us, is also a God of justice. And that's incredible good news, brothers. Because not only do we need to have the same wisdom our brothers of old in the Old Testament needed to know how to live justly in an unjust world, we need to have the same encouragement time and time again, every Tuesday, every day of the week, that God is on the throne. Uh, that He sees all things. And one day He will return and make all things right. So in Psalm 82, what we're going to see is what biblical justice is, according to Scripture. Why God cares about it so much, and therefore why we should care about it. It's a very convicting passage, but by the end of it, I do think we'll be encouraged. So we're going to split this up in a couple of different scenes. The first scene in verses 1 through 4, I've entitled The Courtroom. Now this is essentially to show us what's going on, helping us to navigate Psalm 82, because it's quite dramatic. Uh, in verses 1 through 4, uh, of all the other Psalms of Lament that we have seen, this one is especially unique. And those other Psalms of Lament that we've studied so far, it's been the people of God that have been protesting the evil and the injustice in the world. It's them that have been lamenting. But in Psalm 82, it's different. In Psalm 82, as we've seen in verse 2 through 7, God is the one that's doing the lamenting. He's the one that's lamenting the evil and the injustice in the world. And since God is the one that's lamenting, friends, we got some high drama, I'm telling you. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, this is what Asaph says. Asaph is setting the scene for us. He says, God has taken his place in the divine council. A better translation is that God has stood up in the divine council. Now, what does divine council mean? It's a phrase that's meant to conjure up within our minds the picture of a courtroom. Okay, essentially, this is the biblical version of Dick Wolf's Law and Order. You should have heard the dun-dun just right when I said the divine council. All right? He's giving us a window into God's cosmic courtroom. 
It's spectacular. We're, we're, we're getting a behind-the-scenes image of God on his throne in his cosmic courtroom. And there's a trial going on in verse 1. Now, through this window, we see two groups of characters. First and foremost, we see God. Now, who is God? Well, obviously, it's his courtroom, right? So God is judge. God describes himself as judge all throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 96, he says he is the judge over all of the earth, over all of the cosmos. In the New Testament, Acts uh, Acts 17, Luke tells us that the day has been set that he will come and judge the world with justice and righteousness. God is the judge. Now, who is he judging? Who's on trial? Asaph tells us they're gods. Uh, We'll understand who they are in just a moment. But here's the picture that we have. Uh, God, he has heard all that he needs to hear. He has seen all that he needs to see. And so God stands up. That's what judges did back then. They stood up to give their verdict. And my friends, when God stands up, everybody else is sitting. Okay, this is a big deal. God stands up to render his verdict and his judgment. The scene, therefore, is that God has come to judge the gods. High drama. Now, who are these gods? There's three prevailing theories. First off, this is a more of a newer theory given by Derek Kidner in his commentary, that these gods are demons, principalities, which makes sense because we know that God judges demons. Uh, principalities that Paul would talk about in Romans 8 or Ephesians 6 or in his Corinthian correspondence. I don't think that holds water, though, and I'll tell you why for a couple of reasons. First off, demons and therefore angels, they don't die, which Asaph tells us is the destiny of these gods in verse 7. Uh, Furthermore, demons don't judge human beings, which is the job description of these gods according to verse 3. We will judge demons on the day to come, but Demons don't judge man. So it's not demons. Another uh, theory of who these gods are, where they're the idols of old, the idols of the pagan nations, which makes sense because God does judge the idols of pagan nations, particularly in the prophets, but also earlier in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where he cracks and crushes those graven images. But again, for the same reasons as that first theory, I don't think that holds much water because idols are fictitious gods. Therefore, they cannot die because they were never living in the first place. Therefore, they cannot judge us because they're fictitious. So it's not idols either. I think the most reasonable interpretation of what gods are is actually the oldest interpretation, and it's that they're human beings, rulers. Now, I know that seems weird to think that the Bible would describe human beings as gods, Elohim with the lowercase g, But we actually see that in a lot of different places in the Bible, particularly those two passages in Exodus that I've listed on your thing, Exodus chapter 21 and Exodus chapter 22. In certain situations, legal proceedings are commanded to be taken before Elohim, God's plural rulers, those who are supposed to be imaging God's rule on earth. The greatest piece of evidence is actually from Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, uh, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and all those guys, uh, they're rebuking Jesus for being identified as the one true Son of God. And so in order to uphold, really, his own divinity, but also to kind of chastise these folks for really not knowing what they're talking about, he quotes Psalm 82. He says, Has not the word of God come to you and describe you, those of those who hold the word, as sons of God? How much more appropriate is it then that the incarnate word of God shall be described as the son of God? The point being that these gods, they were human beings. They were judges. They were rulers. They were prophets. They were priests. They were kings. Essentially anyone who had delegated power from God to represent God in the world in their areas of influence. Now why is that important? Why don't we just spend three or four minutes on that? It's important because if that's true, then that means this passage does not just apply to those prophets and priests and kings of old. It also applies to government officials today. Presidents, mayors, governors, Congress. Doesn't Paul tell us in Romans 13 that they have delegated power from God to rule? It doesn't matter if they're believers or not. They have been given power from God to rule in his place on this world. Throughout history, not, they haven't been doing a great job of that in different countries and different eras of the world. But nevertheless, that's been their mission. That's what God gave them power for, to rule people justly and fairly. 
This passage has also applied to church leaders, pastors, deacons, and elders, those of us who have been charged to shepherd God's people, to image God's people, or rather to image God to God's people. This passage also applies to business leaders, CEOs, doctors, lawyers, fathers and husbands, anyone who has delegated authority from God to represent God in the relationships that we have who are in a position to provide justice and mercy and compassion to those that we lead, which I think includes every single person in this room. And as God says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, all deeds will be judged, even those in secret, whether good or bad. God intends for us as image bearers, as his people, to image him in this world, including his justice. And it's a divine work to do so. And as we see in Psalm 82, it is a great evil not to do so. So this is a scene. God on high as the one true judge is judging the gods, those whom he has called and given authority to and dignity to represent him in this world. And before we get to the ruling, our second section, I want us to understand a couple of basic biblical principles about biblical justice. First and foremost, justice is something that you and I must do. Justice, I know it's a, a fad right now. It's, a, it's a, one of those words that we see in the media all the time. Listen, just is a characteristic. Justice is an action. It's something much more than a fad. It's something that's biblical, and it's something that we are commanded to do. One of my favorite passages that teach this is Micah 6.8. I pray this over my son all the time. One, that you would love kindness. Two, that you would do justice. And thirdly, you would walk humbly with the Lord. What does that mean? Micah is teaching us what God desires of us. How are we to live a life that is pleasing to God, one that we can enjoy and enjoy his favor in relationship with him, desire the things that he desires and love the things that he loves? Well, this is what he says. If you want to walk humbly with the Lord, do justice out of compassionate love. That's what Micah 6.8 tells us. That's what God desires of every single one of us, that we would love kindness and do justice and walk humbly with him. What that means then is that all those folks who have ever told us that the Christian faith is a private thing could not be more wrong. I mean, they're smoking something because that's nowhere in scripture. The Christian faith is anything but private. I remember when I, I told you all this before a long time ago, but it has a great effect on me. When I first became a Christian in Old Miss, I shared my faith with a lot of my fraternity brothers. There was an older Christian in my fraternity that came to me after he heard me say that and share my faith with these other guys. He took me to the side and essentially said, Barton, quit being an idiot. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're being one of those Jesus freaks, okay? It's great that you're a Christian, but don't be weird about it, okay? This is a private thing like politics. No one wants to hear it. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know. Later to find out that he couldn't have been more wrong. Listen, the prophet Jonah was rebuked by God because his private faith was of no public good to anybody. As Christians, we cannot separate the gospel and the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor. We live in response to the gospel that we've received, do we not? We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and that is the gospel truth. But as those who have received new life in Christ, we live this new life in Christ. We follow Christ. And he sums it up how to do that. One, love God, and two, love your neighbor. And as we see in this text, most notably, the least of these those on the fringes of society. Now, how do we do justice? Well, Asaph tells us in verse 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, we are to make sure that there's equal justice for everyone, that there's no one that's getting justice and another group of people that aren't getting justice. There's equal justice. But then in verse 4, he says, but be quick to defend those, essentially, who are vulnerable to mistreatment. Like the overlooked throughout portions of society, even today, women, children, immigrants, Minorities, whether if it's ethnic minorities, gender minorities, or socioeconomic minorities. People who are generally overlooked by the majority world. Now, it seems contradictory because in verse 3 he says, make sure everyone has equal justice. In verse 4 he says, but, however, I want you to really pay close attention to these folks over here. Does it seem just to focus on these folks, really? I love how C.S. Lewis explains it. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, because the privileged will always seek justice for themselves. And that's not a bad thing. Essentially what he means by saying that is that those of us who are privileged, which I think is all of us in here, uh, relatively know the right people to call if we get in trouble. We generally have the resources that we need to get ourselves out of the bind. 
That's just the way it is. That's God's blessing on us. That's great. But he says, generally speaking, because the privileged will always seek justice for themselves, we must make sure that those who don't have advocates are advocated for. This is the point. Justice is to be equitable, but we always must remember that injustice is never equitable. That scale always tips towards the least of these on the fringes of society. And he says, you, my people, who are supposed to to resemble me and model me in the world, I want you to look out for these people whom I love dearly, the poor and the needy and the fatherless and the widow and the sojourners, the immigrants, so on and so forth. I want you to focus on them because they are vulnerable to being mistreated. So that means then that justice, it's not just making sure every wrong is treated fairly, it includes that, but according to Psalm 40, 140, it means that we are to, uh, to secure justice for the lowly. You see that there's an action. Psalm 140 says, secure justice for the lowly. What that means is make sure that people's rights are being upheld. Make sure that people's dignity as being image bearers of God is being dignified. Because we know that there's people in our society and in our world, maybe even in our homes and our neighborhoods and our school systems, where their rights are not being upheld. We as Christians should know that more than anyone. We know because of the fall, injustice exists. We have that worldview. And what God is telling us here is make sure those people that are not, that that don't have advocates, make sure they are advocated for. Now, the big question is why, oh, why does God care about this so much? Well, it's because it reflects God's character. Uh, We see all over the place in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 through 18, Psalm 146, 7 through 9. Just listen to these texts. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 146, verse 7 through 9. God who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He watches over the sojourners. Another translation, immigrants or refugees. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord is the God of justice. Isaiah 61, 8. The Lord loves justice justice. When I was introduced today, this is Barton Kimbrough, one of the greatest rebels, or whatever Fred Schaefer said. Thank you about that, by the way. Uh, When you speak publicly, you go to a conference, whatever, and you have the honor to speak before people, you'll be introduced. Bob Williams works at First Tennessee Bank. Uh, John Brown, you know, doctor at Baptist East. When God introduced himself in scripture, he says, my name is Yahweh, and I'm the defender of the weak. That's how he identifies himself in Scripture more often than not, that he is the defender, friends, of the weak. Why does he love justice? Because it's his character. He is the God of justice. And that is good news. And that is why then that we must take justice seriously because our mandate, not only as human beings as image bearers, but specifically as his people, are to image his character in the world, including his justice. Isaiah 1, verse 17, listen to this. This is God speaking to this. He goes, learn to do good. That means we're not genetically and theologically and spiritually predisposed of doing good. We're fallen creatures. We have to learn to do good by the power of God's spirit and grace. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Does that sound familiar, brothers? That is how God describes himself in Deuteronomy. He says, this is who I am. I want you to be like this in the world. Why? One, so people will know the glory of our God. This is what Deuteronomy 4, 6-8 through passage essentially tells us. We are to create a culture of justice, of righteousness. That's what the church is supposed to do. Expand God's kingdom of grace and righteousness. I can't remember the emperor's name, but in the first couple of centuries of the church, the Roman Empire, their governors and their emperors would look at the church, who were also an oppressed people, but look at them and just marvel at the love that the Christians had for people who weren't Christians, for their own, but also for pagans. They would marvel. Look how they love these orphans. Look how they love these sick people. Look how they touch those lepers. Look how they take care of their dead. Who are these people? They were mesmerized by the love that the church showed the world. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be beacons in this world, showing God's glory that he is the God of the justice, that he upholds the cause of the needy and the poor. 
Two, we're to do it simply to honor the image of God and other people. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He goes, you have never, ever met an ordinary person. You've never met an ordinary person. You've never spoken to a mere mortal. Everyone that you have a relationship with is an immortal image bearer of God. Whether a believer or not, they are an image bearer of God. So we're to honor them. We're to uphold their dignity. And of course, we do it in response to the grace that we've been received. We don't live this way in order to earn God's favor. We've received God's favor in order to live this way. God says in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verse 19, Love the sojourner, Israel, because you were once sojourners in Egypt. Do you hear that? The, the, the emphasis on loving the oppressed people is because you were once oppressed and I saved you. Therefore, love these people. So these three basic principles. One, justice is something to do. It's an action, something we've been called to do. We're to do it because, one, it reflects God's character, and two, because our job as image bearers, but especially Christians, is to image God in the world for God's glory and for the sake of those he loves, particularly the least of these. And we're all going to be held accountable to that. That's what this teaches us. Very convicting. Now that leads us then to our second point, the ruling. Verses 2 and 5 through 7, the ruling. It's very interesting. You can learn a lot about what someone cares about by what makes them angry. For example, I left my house at 5.50 this morning, set off the alarm, made my wife mad. I learned that she enjoys sleeping in. I would really like to go to one of your houses this evening because it's not going to be a happy place. Son went crazy. The dog went nuts. Can't believe I forgot to do that. Made her angry. God is angry in verse 2. Something's made him angry. It's not an unrighteous anger like that we sometimes experience as just Christians, sinners. An unrighteous anger where it consumes us with hate and anger, where we don't really want justice, we just want our pound of flesh. You see that a lot in media. That's not righteous anger. God has righteous anger. He has righteous indignation. He has been offended and rebelled against. It's high treason, and he is angry in verse 2. We see four things in verse 2 and verses 5 through 7. One, we see the verdict. Two, we see uh, the reason that these folks have fallen. Thirdly, we see the consequence of their actions. And lastly, we see judgment. Let's just roll through these really quick. The verdict in verse 2. God says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He asks the question, how long? But friends, he's not really asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. This is where God starts to lament, where he protests the evil and the injustice that he has seen in the world, particularly with his own people. This rhetorical question is his way to indict these men. Now notice what he says in verse 2. Right after verse 2, he sees that word, uh, we see that word Selah. Now Selah, what that means is, I want you to take a moment and pause and reflect of what's just been said. So God gives this indictment, then he goes, now, I want you to think about it. And what that means is, is God has given these lowercase gods all the time they need to gather their evidence, to, to mount their case, to refute God's claim, to refute his verdict. But the only answer that we get after we see Selah is silence. These men, who are verbose in their powerful days on earth, are left without a word to say here. God has stood up. And he's announced his verdict, and it's that they're guilty. What are they guilty of? Two things, according to verse 2. One, not only have they been unjust themselves and allowed unjustice to continue, they've turned a blind eye to it, but look at verse 2. They've been proactive. They've actually favored the wicked in their dealings with people. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of the good old boy club. You know, when Bob and Frank, they grew up together. Now, Frank is doing some pretty shady business deals. Bob is in a position to call him out on it, but he won't do it because they're best friends, and so he's just going to favor, uh, uh, rule in favor of his buddy. That's what was happening back then. People were ruling in favor of their own tribe, of their own circle. They were putting justice over here and injustice over here. It was a derelict of duty, and it was a sin of partiality. It was nothing worse than the prostitution of justice. They were deciding who got their rights upheld and who didn't. And God hates it. It's okay to say that God hates stuff because he does. He hates sin, and according to Scripture, he hates injustice. Proverbs 11.1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales. Abhorred is a much more serious word than hate. 
The Lord abhors dishonest scales. James 2, 8 through 9. If you show partiality, you sin, break the law, and are convicted as lawbreakers, and most damning for the church anyway. According to Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 24, God despises the worship of those who worship him, but at the same time turn a blind eye to the needy. This is what he says verbatim. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I don't want to listen to it, but let justice roll down like waters, the righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's saying that for his people back in the old days, that their worship, as, as elegant as it might have been, as buttery as their theological verbiage was, it was an annoyance to God because they've missed the point. They have not reflected God's glory in the world. They have not imaged God in the world. And he says, I don't want to hear your worship if you're not listening to the cries of the needy. God hates it. And he says, you are guilty. Notice in verse 2, they didn't say a, a blessed thing because there was nothing to say. They were guilty. So that's the verdict. Now we get to the reason of what was happening. Well, first off, let's go back to the application of that verdict. Um, there's not one person in this room that is blatant in their failure in this type of way as those Old Testament priests and kings. I know that. But I do know, too, that I, I fail at this type of stuff all the time in my own heart. And I think when we see that word selah, it, it requires us to take a moment to stop and think about it. Because I know personally, and maybe I am the only one, and that would be great news if I am, but I, I know that personally I struggle with showing partiality in my life. I know that I struggle with, with being a derelict of duty when it comes to justice. How often have we, have we thought in our hearts um, the, 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 the sin of just derelicting our duty, of just avoiding justice altogether, that those people over there, they've brought it on themselves, they're probably going to be ungrateful, uh, I'm just not going to waste my time. I've thought that a lot. I think I thought that just yesterday. But this is what Jonathan Edwards says to that very same thought that we so often think. He says, Jonathan Edwards says, Christ loved us, was kind to us, and was willing to relieve us, though we were hateful of him and disposed to evil. So shouldn't we then be willing to be kind to those who well are undeserving? Sometimes we think to ourselves that those people are sinful, they're living in sin, they broke the law, they brought this on themselves. But, but Calvin says, be mindful. It's okay to think that because they are living in sin, maybe. But always reminded of what Calvin says, he has always remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them. This is John Calvin. Which counsels in our minds their transgression and so allures us to love and embrace them. Because of Christ, we are a debtor to our neighbors, not just Christians, but our neighbors. And we ought, in exercising kindness towards them, to set no other limit to the end of our resources. John Calvin, when it comes to showing partiality, church leaders, deacons, elders, pastors, we cannot show a type of pastoral care to the wealthy folks and to those that have those clean-cut, manageable sins and offer a completely different type of pastoral care to the poor folks and those that have those dirty, nasty sins that we don't have anything to do with. As business leaders, we can't have a set of business practices and standards set for the powerful and mighty clients in a completely different type of business practice set for those that aren't going to really affect the bottom line that much. We've we, we, we got to demonstrate this in our relationships with people. We can't just be welcoming to those who are highly influential and might put us up a peg in the social, social ladder and never extend a warm hand of fellowship to the least of these. We've got to make sure that we're not being partial in our judgments and we're not derelicting our duty of being justice bearers of God in this world. As Asaph includes that word Selah at the end of verse 2, it calls us all to take a moment and consider the fact that each of us will be judged by how we've treated the weakest person in our areas of influence. Not just the mighty folks, but how have we treated the weakest people in our areas of influence? Have we identified with the least of these? Have we showed compassion? Have we showed justice? Have we showed mercy? Have we loved them? God does that. Those early gods back then did not. They were guilty. Now next, we move on to the reason they did this. We have the root problem in verse 5a, and essentially it's ignorance. Listen to what God says. They've done this because they do not know 
and do not understand. What does that mean? Commentators say it's because these folks have cut themselves off completely from God's word and instruction. They've taken bits of the Bible that they like and have applied it to themselves and they have ignored his instruction. They've cut themselves off from God's word, which leaves them without wisdom and discernment, which causes them to stumble around in darkness, which is the equivalent of moral confusion. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. If we turn the lights off, of course we're going to stumble around of how to live life. This is a difficult, confusing place to live, of how to apply and live justly in the world. If we're not stationed and anchored in God's word, which is eternal in this ever-changing landscape, we're sunk. And that's exactly what those men did. They cut themselves off from God's word. And they started making asinine decisions that did not make sense and did not reflect God's glory. We see this all the time today in government throughout our history, in some businesses, in some families that just fall apart. Why? Because they've cut themselves off from God's word, which is a lamp unto our feet. The consequence of that we see in verse 5c. Because gods, these gods have cut themselves off from God's word, the most basic institutions have been shaken. It says the foundations of the world... Commentators say what that's describing is the basic institutions of the world. Uh, the economy, the government, school systems, homes, churches, so on and so forth. The basic institutions of our world have shook because those whom God has charged to lead those things have not acted justly. Uh, essentially what this is describing is God's creation of the world. When God created the world, he created it good, he ordered it perfectly, and he put justice in the DNA of his good created world. But because of the fall, sin entered, and men started acting unjustly, cruel, and even hateful. And because of that, these things start to shake. This is why evil, systematic injustices exist today. This is why poor folks and the needy are left behind. This is why the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. This is why the, the lowly and disenfranchised throughout certain areas of history, women, uh, minorities, whether if it's socioeconomics or if ethnic, eth, uh, ethnically, are looked as second-class citizens. Why? Because injustice exists. The foundation of the world has been shaken. And that lastly leads to the judgment. Look what God says in verse 6. In verse 6, before he delivers this judgment, he once again calls on the names of those that he's judging. And, he is, and this is what God says. He says, I said that you were gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Do you hear the indictment there? I mean, he's just beside himself when he says this. We've already seen that God's means people who are representing God and his rule in this life. But he, then he adds this phrase, sons of the Most High. That's a phrase that is used to describe God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And so he says, you are gods, I've called you that. You are sons of the Most High, yet you have done this. He is showing how insidious these crimes were because they were direct assaults to that gracious covenant that God has made with them. He goes, I expect this from the pagan rulers, from the emperors. I expect this from the pharaohs of Egypt. But I made a covenant with you. I gave you my word. You know what I care about. You know what I love. You know what I desire. But yet you've turned a blind eye to those that I love, is what verse 6 says. And because of that, in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, though you're sons of the Most High, like men, you shall die. God is saying, in earth, in your power, in your heyday, you thought you were something. But one day you're going to realize you really aren't nothing. You had a lot of power, you had a lot of wealth, you had a lot of influence, you influenced legions, but you're going to die just like that poor woman. And just like no one remembers her name, no one's going to remember how much power and influence you had. This isn't talking about eternal judgment, this is just talking about the fact that all of us are going to die. And on that day, Jesus is going to say, did you love me? Did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. We're all going to be held to account, everyone, not just the people in this room, but every single person in the world is going to be held to account of how they lived in response to God. And that's what he's reminding these socialites, these leaders, these kings, these prophets, these priests. Martin Luther says that this passage reminds us of the great dignity that we have as image bearers in God's people, but also gives us a sober reminder of our responsibility. He says, every prince should have printed on the wall of his chamber and on the garments this text. 
It ought surely to strengthen a Lord to conduct his office with joy to practice such virtues. For how can we praise this rank more highly by saying that they are called and are indeed in some way gods? And the works and the virtues of their rank, not only of royally angelic, but even divine. But on the other hand, they find how ungodly, unprincely, in fact demonic are the iniquities they commit and how they are most harmful people on the face of the earth if they do the opposite of these virtues, and they cannot be called gods, but rather demons. He applies this psalm not just to princes and lords. That was his language. He applies this to everyone who's been given regulated authority from God to represent God in this world, who have a position to show compassion and love and mercy to those that need it. It's high drama. God brings judgment against the gods. But friends, the good news is that this passage ends with high promise and high encouragement. Look at verse 8. We're about to wrap up. Verse 8. This is Asaph speaking again. He says, Rise up, O God, judge of the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Verses 2 through 7 is God. Verse 1 and 8 is Asaph. And in verse 8, he gives this prayer. Rise up, O God, judge of the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Do you see what he's doing there? In verse 1, he takes this judgment scene of God, which is in heaven, then he brings it down to earth in verse 8. Commentators say this is very reminiscent of the Lord's Prayer that we're taught in Matthew 6.10, where Jesus teaches us to pray, make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer. Uh, James Boyce, he says this, is this prayer of God's intervention what we will call the last judgment when he pours out his wrath and on justice? Yes, but friends, it is also a prayer of God's people for justice to be done now on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer. Now, why is that important to remember? Because while this is convicting for us, while it's sobering and heart-piercing, it would have been exactly the same thing for the Old Testament people. It was for Asaph. You think Asaph was pointing and wagging his fingers at other folks when he heard God say this? Absolutely not. This was convicting for Asaph too, yet the people of Israel prayed it every single Tuesday. Why? Well, of course they needed wisdom of how to act justly in an unjust world, but friends, remember, they needed the encouragement, and friends, so do we. How does verse 8 encourage us? Well, one, brothers, uh, it reminds us that God one day will make justice reign on earth. One day, God will make justice reign. That will will be the chief characteristic of this world, justice and righteousness. Sometimes we can become so defeated and so helpless and even a sense of hopelessness when we see all the evil and injustice in this world, especially with social media where there's a news story every single day of some horrific thing that's happening in the world, sometimes even our own cities. And of course, we can become hopeless, but remember what verse 8 teaches us. It teaches us that all of the nations and every single person that the entire cosmos is the inheritance of Christ. And brothers, when Christ stands up and returns, he will make all things new. This is what Revelation teaches us. He will bring justice to the earth. There will be no more tears, no more pain. Every wrong will be made right. Everything sad be made untrue. And justice will flow like streams of water that Micah prophesied thousands of years before. We must remember that, especially when we become beside ourselves and are downtrodden by the things that we see in this world. God is on the throne and he will make all things right. Secondly, we need this prayer to remind ourselves of the promise that we have in Christ. Friends, we have to see the promise of Christ in here. This is convicting. We have failed every single one of us, if not blatantly in our own hearts. And yes, Christ will come back and he will judge all peoples, including the church. But friends, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what we just celebrated a couple of weeks ago in Easter. The only judgment that the judge could ever bring against you that could ultimately destroy you, the wrath of God, was poured out in full on Christ on the cross of Calvary. All of it. While we were still slaves in Egypt, God rescued us. While we were still sinners, while we were still unjust, while we were still wicked, Christ died for us. The great news of the gospel, brothers, is that Jesus is the just one, but also the justifier for all those who come to him in faith. Jesus is the perfect judge. He is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest. And he's the perfect king. He lived the life that we couldn't. 
He always resisted temptation. He always resisted lying. He always resisted partiality. He always resisted cowardice. He always resisted turning a blind eye. He always resisted apathy for all the times that we didn't. Praise God that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Therefore, we have absolutely nothing to fear, brothers, as sinful as we are in the day of judgment because of what Christ has done. And we have every reason to model him in this world because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he is the only one that will revive a church, revive a nation, and revive a soul. And by God's grace and to his mystery and maybe even humor, he's given us the most privileged position as his image bearers, as his agents of reconciliation. He's given us a mission to live out in this world. And that's the third reason we need to pray this prayer because we're reminded that God will empower us for that mission. How many times have we thought to ourselves, what can God do with me in a world like this? With all the things, all the wicked things that we see in the world, and maybe not even those big things that we see in the world, maybe it's just these business practices that our boss or our coworkers are doing. What can I do there? What can I do in my own family? How can I talk to my spouse or my kids? What can I possibly do? How could God possibly use me? Asaph says, pray this prayer and watch God use you. Friends, do you not understand this is the whole purpose of our salvation? Paul says, you are saved by grace, not according to your works, so no man can boast. You are saved according to grace, but you have been saved for good works. He says in Ephesians 2.10, works of righteousness. In Titus, he tells Titus that God saves us in Jesus. He makes us holy. He separates us from our common and ordinary use. You hear that being said when we do the Lord's Supper. Lord, please separate these elements from their common and ordinary use. Do you realize that he has separated us as image bearers from our common and ordinary use when he has saved us in Christ? He has made us holy brothers. He has made us his instruments in this world to do devoted works of the kingdom, he says to Titus. Jesus himself says that we are his city on the hill, that we are salt. One, what does salt mean? Salt means that we are to preserve what is good in the world and that we're to fight back the decay of evil and injustice. And he also says we are his light, his image bearers, to shine his glory. That is who you are. You're nothing less. And God said he's going to use you. He's going to use us to care for the widow, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry in the way in which we love them. He's going to exalt the immigrant and the sojourner and the oppressed in the way that we care for them. He's going to revive the nation. He's going to revive the church in the way that we pray. And he's going to save souls by the gospel that we share with them. God plans to expand his kingdom of grace in the world through his church, brothers. That's who we are. Asaph says here, what can you do? Pray and see you, sons of the Most High. Really quickly, I was reminded of John Newton, which is why I love that John, or, uh, Calvin picked this passage, or picked that song that we sang. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Um, William Wilberforce, in the late 1700s, he was elected to Parliament. Uh, he was re-elected a couple of years later because he was just known for integrity, and he was very eloquent. After his second election, um, he began reading the writings of Christians, particularly evangelical Christians. And he was mesmerized by the things that he read. This gospel, this free gospel of grace that is offered to us in Jesus, this new way of living, this, this, this way of God, this way of Christ that he teaches us to live that he was not seeing played out in Parliament. This amazing thing. And he said God grabbed a hold of his heart. He called it the great change. He was converted just like that. Right after he was converted, he met John Newton who wrote that song, who was a prominent preacher. And John Newton began to disciple William Wilberforce. He taught him the baptism of Christ and the great commandment, but he didn't forsake that second part either. He taught them all that Christ taught them. He taught them how to love God and how to love people. And so he was just mesmerized by this. He goes, you know what? I'm going to get out of parliament. These jokers don't know what they're doing. I can't do anything there. I want to join the pastorate. And those closest to him, Wilberforce said, no, 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 don't do that. I don't know how God is going to use you, but I promise you he's going to use you. He's going to use you some way beyond your wildest imagination. God is going to use you, so just stay. So he did. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know how God was going to use him, but he knew that he just needed to follow Jesus. And so he started pursuing justice in a time in history 
where there was severe injustice. The slave trade was at an all-time high. And so he joined this group called the Saints, a group of abolitionists. And so he set out to put to death the slave trade there in England. Now, he knew it was an uphill battle, and of course it was. It was a lucrative business. Uh, the high and mighties were not going to let this thing go easily, and they were going to do everything they possibly could to put his bills to death. Of course, they did. Uh, with every uh, successive session that Parliament met, every single one of his bills was put down to the day that he died. But nevertheless, he, he continued to do so. He knew that it was probably a, a fool's errand. He, he probably knew that nothing was ever going to happen. He, he was exhausted. He was tired of being beat up verbally and relationally from all of his workers in Parliament, co-workers in Parliament, but he continued to do it anyway. Several months after he died, the bill passed. Within four years, every slave in England was freed. Before he died, someone asked him, how could you possibly keep on going the way that you are? How could you possibly keep on going against the grain? All the world's against this. And he wrote down his guiding principles for his life. Four things, four words. Admit, submit, commit, transmit. All you need to do, he says, is that you admit Christ is Savior. That you admit that he's the saver of souls. He saves you even though you're undeserving. He does that. The gospel is essentially what he's talking about. Just admit the gospel. Secondly, submit to Christ as Lord. He is Lord over all of creation. He is judge over all the earth. Thirdly, commit to follow his way of life that he teaches us to follow. Follow Jesus. It says commit to follow Jesus. Lastly, transmit the love of Jesus to a dying world. And that's all you need to do. He never saw the fruit of his labor, but God used it. This son of the most high. Brothers, we will never have a position like William Wilberforce. We will never have his influence, but make no mistake about it. God has put you where you are for a specific reason. And he's given you the great honor and the great dignity to be called a son of the most high. May we, by God's grace, love kindness and do justice and walk humbly with Jesus. May we always remember, too, that God is on his throne. And boys, one day he's coming back and he'll make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gospel of Jesus. As we sang this morning, we are poor, we are needy, we are sinners, we are weak and sore, but you embrace us as your sons when we come to you in Christ. You have made us sons of the Most High. You've brought us into your family. And those of us who are Christians in this room, you've made every single one of us princes, your image bearers in the world. Oh, Father, may we give you thanks. May we give you praise. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to follow you and to represent you in this world in a way that would give you glory. Help us to love kindness. Help us to do justice. And help us to walk humbly with Jesus all the days of our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.